When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is episode 175, Mentoring Junior Developers. I'm Matt, that's Mike, and this week we'll be talking to you about how you can help developers around you get into the industry. So if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon. Leave a review rating on your podcast app. Join us in our Discord server. Share us with your friends. And now, this is a Mike-heavy episode. So please, sir, take it away. All right. So I'm going to apologize right off the top because I don't think I'm... 100% clear of my whole throat issue and coughing and stuff like that. So if you hear some coughing or you, if you hear me shut up for a second, it's probably me kind of trying to clear my throat or taking a drink. But let's get right into it. Should we have a swear jar, but not a swear jar? Like a maybe we should have a swear jar for me. But should we have a <laughs> have like a cough jar for you where it's like every time you cough, you owe me a buck like me specifically? I mean, I'm OK with that as long as you owe me a dollar every time you swear. How about we do it like offset? So I'll charge you tax and you don't charge me tax. I'm not doing tax. We're not, <laughs> we're not calculating tax. Taxes is for a fucking accountant. No, we're not doing it. I'm already owing you a dollar because I swore. But anyway, <laughs> with this, mentoring junior developers, <laughs> it's kind of like a, a really important topic. I feel like right now at this very moment, and I've, I've been mentoring on and off or actually pretty much on for the last few months. I've had this group, uh, one of the friends of the show, Adderson, he was on the show a little while ago, started a, a mentoring company called Bridge. Uh, they do kind of like a one-to-many mentoring approach where there's one mentor to many mentees. They do a group project and the mentor kind of goes through that project with them, uh, meeting every two weeks, seeing the progress, kind of running the Kanban board, stuff like that. So I have some experience in it. I wouldn't say I'm an expert at mentoring yet and I'm still learning and I'm still reaching out to people that are much better at me than it and trying to learn from them as well because it's a very difficult task. And there's many reasons for that. When you're a developer, when you're working for a high-stakes company, you have very little time to spare for something like teaching. And this is a problem with the industry as a whole. This is not your fault. This is not your maybe not even your manager's fault. It doesn't matter. It's just one of those things where the deadlines are so crazy. And we talked about this in last week's episode, Web Development Hell, uh, where it's just like every single day is packed to the brim. So if you take an hour out of that day to teach someone, you're losing an hour of productivity. And when we do these project timelines, we don't account for mentoring. And that, that's wrong. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the right thing to do at all. It's just the reality of the situation right now. A lot of people are kind of suffering for it in terms of not only getting into the industry, but actually staying in the industry as a junior developer. So what I want this episode to focus on is what you can do as a mentor. And maybe if you're a mentee, maybe if you're someone getting into the industry, you can start to think about how you can approach others. I kind of senior developers, intermediate developers and get their guidance on these topics as well, right? Because if you have a more concrete approach to getting mentorship, 
there's a higher chance. Whereas if you go to someone like on Twitter or something and you message them and say, hey, how do I get into web development? That's a very general question and very difficult to answer for someone because like it takes – everyone has a different path, first of all. Everyone has a different approach to it. And and also to, to write up an answer to that that's any good is going to take a lot of time. So usually you're going to get no response. Like that's just the reality of it. But if you go up to someone and you ask a direct question like, <clears throat> how do I get a better portfolio or what tech stack would you, what, should I learn first? Or, you know, I've learned HTML and CSS. What's the next step for me? Or, you know, just a more concrete question. You're going to have a better shot. I'm not saying everyone's going to answer you. I'm just saying you're going to have a better shot on an answer if you approach someone with that. So, Try to take this again. It's more directed at people mentoring, but if you're if you're receiving mentorship or you want to receive mentorship, you can definitely twist it a little bit and try to think of it from the mentor's point of view and get more out of that situation. But having said that, let's kind of move on right into the topics here. So the first thing that a mentor can do for a mentee is urge them to stand out. This is for someone, especially getting into the industry or upgrading or whatever, like going to a better job or a different role. When you're in the development industry, when you're trying to get in, it's just very, very competitive. We've talked about this many times on the podcast with different guests and ourselves. It's right now for, for junior developers getting in, it's difficult because there's hundreds of people applying for the same job. Um, and all of those people are trying to, you know, maximize their resumes, maximize their skills to fit that job. So what you have to do is you have to do that little bit extra. And Theo, again, another friend of the podcast, another someone that was on, recently kind of pointed out that if you're listening to this podcast right now, if you're listening to other development podcasts, you're already a little bit of a step ahead of everyone because that means you're showing your passion there. You're showing your willingness to take that extra step. And that's already good. But I'm hoping that you can take some like real life lessons here and implement them into your own life, into your own, you know, development journey. So if you want to stand out, there's many ways to do that. One of them is obviously portfolio. So a portfolio is really, really key when you're kind of reaching out to recruiters or you're reaching out to companies, they're going to ask you for a link to your portfolio as well as your resume. They're just go hand in hand at this point. And if you can kind of structure your portfolio a little bit differently than everyone else is, if you can figure out a different design, if you can maybe approach someone to help you with it, maybe not, obviously not do it for you, but if you can try to find a approach to the portfolio, that's just a little bit different than the generic kind of, you know, here's a bunch of my projects. It's going to help you stand out a little bit. And again, when I, if I'm, if I'm the hiring director, I'm going to put on that hat right now. And I see someone have a fantastic portfolio, that's obviously going to give them a step up over someone who has something that's generic. Having a portfolio obviously is already great, but I'm just saying portfolio design, portfolio performance, the, 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 the technology that you use for your portfolio is something you can also showcase in my opinion. So again, how you build it, open source portfolios, stuff like that can kind of give you that extra heads up. And if you have really clean code, on your portfolio, again, that's another huge thing. When you go to your GitHub and you have links to your GitHub in your portfolio, make sure that your code is structured well. Make sure you're prettier and linting it. Make sure that it's consistent across the board. Um, stuff like that is, again, another kind of step in the right direction for standing out. Another thing is just project creation. So you created a portfolio, but now it's just a portfolio. You need to fill it with projects. And 
the generic projects like a to-do list are great. And I, I, I highly recommend you do it. But if you're thinking a little bit outside the box and you're, again, you're trying to stand out, maybe try to add a little bit of a feature to your to-do list or maybe try to solve a problem that you have right now. Like if you're, again, going to the gym and you're trying to fit a particular workout into your regime, try to build an application that kind of fits that workout, that tracks that workout specifically for you better. Because again, when you're building something for yourself, usually you're going to build it a little bit differently than someone else that's building it for the general public. And that's going to differentiate you a little bit. Again, it's all about being a little bit different and, and having that little bit of passion that you're showing. And I'll talk, to, I'll talk about that in a second as well, the passion side of things. The other thing you can do, again, you created some projects, you created your portfolio to house those projects, is audience building. So this one is a little bit difficult and it requires a little bit more of a step. But when you're in that phase of trying to break into the industry, it's really, really beneficial for you to go and try to build a network. And really by audience, I mean network. Obviously, you don't, you don't have to build yourself a following of people and stuff like that. But if you build a solid network of people that appreciate what you're putting out there, the content that you create and the con, like, it'll just give you that again, that extra step. Because when a recruiter or a hiring manager or just, just a comp, like a startup company takes a look at you and Googles you or finds you on your portfolio and they they see not only do you have all these projects, but you're also contributing to a community. You're also contributing these blog posts. You're also contributing on Twitter by, you know, showing your journey of how you're learning JavaScript or how you're learning CSS, something like that. Again, it puts you a little bit ahead. And I'm not saying you have to do all of what I'm saying. So maybe audience building isn't for you. Maybe you just don't have that in you or you tried it and you just really, really hated it. Don't, you know, if you really hate something, obviously I'm not saying plow through that and go through the hate. It's not going to be a good experience, but I highly recommend you at least try the things that I'm, I'm suggesting. And if you have some sort of, you know, momentum or if you have some sort of passion for it, then go towards that thing that you have a passion for. So if it's project creation or open source contribution, that's a really great way to stand out. If it's audience building and content creation, that's another really great way to stand out. I'm not saying you have to do all of these things. I'm just saying these are the things that could help you stand out. Try to see which one you're more passionate about and which one's easier for you to accomplish while still, you know, applying for jobs, learning development skills and uh, going through your daily life. Maybe you already have a job that and you're doing this on the side. It's impossible to be able to, you know, maximize 100% of your time in this effort. So you have to pick and choose what you want to do. And uh, the best thing to do is to pick something that you're already passionate about or you you think you can get passionate about too, because it's just going to be easier to convey that passion through your work and through the job hiring process as well, like interviews and stuff like that. The other thing is, again, I just want to talk a little bit about that passion side because it I think it's miscued a little bit. And uh, we, we, we talk about this a lot with guests that we have on, like, do you really need that passion to succeed? It might, it, it's not about like, oh, I freaking love web development. Like I just want to, every single day, every single hour, I, I'm all about the web development. I don't think that that's what the passion means. Obviously, some people have that passion. That's great. But the reality is, is obviously web development at the end of the day is going to be a job. The passion, the passion that I'm more talking about is just a willingness to learn new things for yourself during your work hours. You know what I mean? Like when you're sitting down to code and you stumble upon an issue, are you willing to go out of the box and like look for something new or something like that? And are you willing to kind of get through it and 
almost enjoy that process of getting through the problems, getting learning, learning new technologies while you're working. Obviously, again, the passion side of things, if you're, you know, you go outside and you play a sport or something like that, you don't have to always be thinking about web development. That's not what the passion means. It's, it's the passion to actually just get through the job because it's a little bit, web development is a little bit different than other careers. And th- there's some similarities, obviously, but there's always this ever changing atmosphere of stuff is constantly evolving. You're constantly going to be running into roadblock after roadblock because stuff isn't meant to work together sometimes. So you have to kind of create a, an adapter for it or something like that. And it's because it's changing and stuff is kind of being brought together, like different technologies are being brought together. It requires a little bit of outside thinking. And I think if you don't have that passion for the problem solving side of things, and you don't have that passion for the create, like being able to go away from a standard solution, it's going to be difficult for you to convey that in an interview. It's going to be difficult for you to, to stand out. Again, it's, it's all about standing out in this section. The other thing is like, when you're in that interview section or when you're in the, in the, in the process of being hired, you almost have to fake it sometimes. Like I understand, again, you're not passionate about web development. Like this isn't your, the thing you want to talk about every single day of your life. But again, in that hiring process, a manager will more likely hire someone that's passionate than that's not passionate if the, if all the, all their skills are the same, right? So you almost have to learn how to fake it. And if you learn that skill of faking passion a little bit where you're like, you know, you read up a little bit on the technology, you you talk about the projects that are passionate for you. Again, you try to skew it so that it's not fake passion. I guess you're not you're not like acting, but you're shifting the passion, the the focus that you have towards more passionate things. So that's why when you're creating these projects, it's always a good idea instead of just taking a generic project, take something that you're actually going to use. If you really like some game, make a stats program for it. If you really like some, you know, if you're a mountain biker, make a make an app about for mountain biking, whatever, because it's going to make it easier for you to almost fake that passion when you're in that interview process. And when you're in the job and you just want to work the nine to five, that's perfectly okay. It's not, again, the passion isn't about that. It's just a, a way for you to try to get in. Like you don't, you know, when you're, when you get the job, you don't have to then, you know, spend all your evenings creating that mountain bike application. That's not what this is all about. If you all you want to do is just work nine to five, get, you know, up your skills during that process, that's okay, in my opinion. I, I'm curious what Matt has to say on that, but like, it's not, it's not required for you to then put in an extra 10 hours of side project work after you get that job. Well, one thing I was going to actually ask you is that the junior developer by nature, just because where they are in their career, will actually have a lot on their plate already just in terms of building new skills. And I was going to ask you what sort of time management or what sort of work-life balance should these people, like these junior developers, given this set of, you know, four or five points of advice, what what should they expect in the work-life balance slash skill building slash time management? Because the way I see it is, and I don't have an answer. That's why I'm asking is because as a, if you're a junior developer and you're trying to learn, learn a new skill and you have a bunch of other stuff on your plate, maybe you even have another job right now, or it could even be a development job or you're going into development for the first time. So you're doing a different job. 
having to effectively jump through a bunch of hoops. Not all this stuff is hoops. A lot of this stuff is important, but there are some stuff where like you're saying where, Hey, let's, let's, you know, maybe just do a little bit of that fake passion or whatever to try to sell yourself. That's kind of jumping through a hoop for the process, like for just for the procedure's sake. And so I'm wondering, or I wonder what your take would be on someone who let's say already does not have a great work-life balance. They're going to be really struggling, let alone the stress of being thrown into the fire, if you will, of all these skills. Like even if you're just uh, teaching yourself web development and you decide, okay, you know what? Like I actually wouldn't mind doing this as a career. You get a mentor and they give you this set of advice. I think it, I think it would be overwhelming, especially if you heard it all at once, because the thing we're kind of taught in school, or at least when we were in school, was from the career classes here was basically at a high level, you are, you go and get your skills. So you do that via going to school and going to co-ops and doing this and that. And then you make a resume and you have a cover letter, which is done to a certain format. You have your resume, which is done to a certain level of professionalism and list your stuff factually. Don't be lying on there. And then that's sort of it. And to have someone have to have someone especially self-teach themselves a whole bunch of technical skills, which change rapidly, need a lot of keep up. But then to also be thrown into the fire of, hey, it's not just a resume and a cover letter anymore. It's also maybe a Twitter's place or a, a blog post or it's a this or a that. What it like? What do you do for someone like that? Is this just a, hey, it's a sink or swim it right now because you're trying to get a job. And so you just have to tough it out. Or is this is this like not as serious? And it's like, hey, you know, you don't have to hit all these points. Like, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And obviously, it depends on many, many different factors. But for instance, you're given you're, you're at the start of your journey as a at becoming a junior developer. You're learning the basic skills. This isn't a one or two day process. This isn't something that is going to happen within like you know a few a few weeks. Even this is going to be month long, year long process, and it's day by day you kind of level up as you go. So you can't think about this. And if you if you start thinking about this and like, I want to get a job in three weeks, it's just going to overwhelm you. It's too much. Like if you're going from zero to developer in three weeks, that's crazy. If you start thinking about it, I want to get to a point in six months where I can, you know, do this X and Y, it starts to become more manageable because what you can do is you can start focusing on different things over different time frames. You know, if you, if you have a portfolio creation, that's your goal. You try to do that in a month or two, right? And then you have your goal is, yeah, I want to start blog posting. You have that as a goal for like a month while you're also refining maybe something else. But the reality is it depends on your time. If you're working full time to support yourself or your family, then it's going to obviously extend this process by a lot. But in my opinion, that's okay. It's okay to take extra time to learn all these things as long as you're being consistent about it and using time management skills properly. Like when you're trying to get into the development field, there's a reason why there's so many people trying to get in and it's just so hard because it's a good job once you get in. It's good pay and your kind of your trajectory is dependent on you alone. If you're a really good developer, the sky's the limit. You know what I mean? So that that's the kind of passion that kind of drives people to go up and up and up. But 
as soon as you start thinking about it from, I have to do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and I have to do it today, that's it. You're done. You're going to burn out quickly. You have to think of it as a long game. If you want to get into development in 2022, you have to start, you know, January 1st and work on it every single day. And then maybe by the end of January, to, uh, by the end of December 2022, you'll be in a position where you can kind of get in. Obviously, there's accelerated paths. You can go through a boot camp, you can go through whatever, but they require a significant time investment. Like a boot camp is a like you're there for eight hours, 10 hours a day, and then you have homework for like two months or a month straight. So you're gone from life for that time. So that's why it's an accelerated path and people do it and they get a job after maybe. But in my opinion, it's perfectly fine to break that up, learn it on the side. But everything comes down to that, like a little bit of passion. You can't learn on the side after your full-time job if you're not passionate about the result or the process. Like you just can't. Like it's just not a regular job. Mm. It's just not a possibility because you're you're already working nine to five and then you come home and you do something you hate or you're, you're not even like you don't care about, you're not going to do it. It's just the reality. Like you're just not going to do it. If you went to school for it, you, you went to a traditional school for web development or development or whatever, and you get out of that and you try to get a job, it's also a problem because unless you were at the top of the class and you had some other extracurriculars around you like projects, like collaborations, like open source work, it's also going to be difficult for you to get a job because the school skills that you learn are different than the work skills. So it's just a little bit of a different career path for people. I kind of equate it a little bit to art where you have to build that portfolio as you're going through art school to be able to get something after art school. That's the only way, right? Like if you go through art school and you just do your classes and you get out of art school, no one's going to give a crap about you. You're just nobody. Like It's essentially you didn't complete art school. Like you, you literally have zero. But if you go through art school and you complete portfolio, portfolio item, portfolio, portfolio item, you get better and better and better as you go. At the end of art school, you have a massive portfolio. And now maybe you can get into graphic design. Maybe you can get into traditional art, wh- whatever you want to do. So in, in web development or in development, in development terms, it's almost the same at this point where you have to kind of do that little bit of extra to get into the job right after. If you wait till the end, then you're going to have a, a space, a period between the end of school and getting your first job where you're doing all of what I'm saying right now building a portfolio, creating GitHub, uh, you know, getting blog posts, audio, whatever, whatever path you choose. I'm not saying all of them. Again, all of them is too much. But this isn't traditional work. And I'm not saying you have to be uber passionate and go crazy about it. But you have to have some, I, some sense that this is leading to something better. And I'm willing to sacrifice some time to differentiate myself to to get better at the skill. Now, having said that, that's the process of finding a job. When you're in the job, right? When you when you're a junior developer, you have your first job or whatever. If you manage your time wisely during work hours, in my opinion, and this this might be a a, a big contention point with the community. If you manage your job, if you manage your time wisely, I think you can learn everything that you need to learn and complete the tasks that you need to learn, that you need to do in your nine to five or whatever, your eight hours a day of, of work. 
I don't think it's required to then have that extra little bit of passion after work to then, you know, build an open source project or whatever. I think you can, you can do it in that nine to five. It's totally possible. It just depends on your time management skills and obviously your ability to learn, like how quickly you can pick up new topics. I would say, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, one thing I was going to say in there is that kind of goes back to our point we've made in the past where some people are developers all the time and some people are not. Some people, when they leave the, the workplace, they're no longer developers. They're now a skier or a biker or they whatever it is, they they play a lot of video games or whatever the case is. And that kind of talks to that point. I will say, though, is with your whole nine to five analogy is that is very dependent on where you work, because there's definitely going to be places that either a they're new and they overload you and don't realize it. B, they're not new, meaning new is in a startup or a small company. Uh, B, they're not new to the space and they are overloading you and they know it and they're just in a jam and they have no other way to deal with it. Or it's just a busy time. Basically, at the end of the day, there's that whole problem where they could be overloading you and it could be just too much. And now you're 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 a junior dev. You're trying to learn new skills, but you have no dedicated learning time. You're just trying to get stuff done. Stuff is all janky, right? There's glitches. It's weird. It's buggy. But the only thing that matters is the next deadline. There are going to be places like that. Because you mentioned a point of contention with the community. And I would say, and there's probably going to be others, but the biggest one that stood out in my mind would be that is because I'm sure there's someone out there listening right now who's either a senior dev or a junior dev who's been in the situation or is currently in the situation where they are in a in a workplace that is overloading them either knowingly or unknowingly, uh, whether it's their fault or not. And it's just it's just a crazy mess, really. And we've been there like you, Mike, you and I have been there. Uh, not working for other people, but for us, you know, we'll get swamps and we have to juggle the juggle the work and stay up super late and this and that and the other thing. And that can happen. That can kind of roll downhill to the employees. Now, I realize some people might say that's due to mismanagement or it's due to this, it's due to that. It's due to so many factors that I'm not going to get into like company wide time management in this episode, but it is something that can happen to you and that and it might actually be very detrimental particularly to a junior developer in terms of learning skills, because then they have no time to sit there and read a manual or sit there and try this new thing or really go through, get something working and then kind of go back really quick and either refactor or just read what they did to sort of solidify it in their brain. Cause it's almost like they're studying live right on the job. And that goes not only for junior devs, that's how senior devs will do it when when they're learning a new skill as well. It's just one of those things where you have to have repetition. But if the company is moving so fast and there's so many different tasks and there's so many different context switching, where you're switching from this project to this project to this project, it's just chaos. And so I would say that would be one big point of contention that really could throw the nine to five off. Yeah, I mean, that's like that's that's just my point. I was going to make another point, but it's just reiterating at this point, you know, it, it really is just sometimes there's just isn't enough time in that nine to five. I was being idealistic. I'll, I'll, I'll admit that I was being in an idealistic scenario where the company values your time and the company <laughs> manages correctly. Like it, it, it's, it's way too rose goggled, but um, 
You're right. It, to set expectations for everyone listening, if you're looking for a solid nine to five job where you can clock clock off at five and you want to guarantee that that's the job you're going to be getting, development's probably not for you initially. Um, I think it's totally doable that you can get there as you kind of job hop. I, I, there, there's jobs like that out there. I'm, just, I'm saying that there's definitely opportunities in the development space that are like that and that you can get there. But to pick and choose initially when you're first starting out as a junior developer before you have the experience is going to be difficult. And sometimes, like Matt's saying, you're going to get into a situation where you are going to be overworked and it's going to be difficult. You know, you, you are going to have to kind of conform to the company's requirements. Now, if you do what I'm saying to stand out and if you – let's say you build your audience, you build your pro- projects, you build your portfolio, your blog post, you network, you connect – that can set you aside to the point where you can be in a position to almost pick your jobs when you're first starting out. But that requires a ton of upfront work. It requires putting yourself out there. It requires showing your mistakes. It requires learning from your mistake. Like It requires a lot of things that I was saying for that to happen, but it is totally doable. If you're willing to do the consistent time, if you're okay with a little bit of a longer lead up to the job, I think it's possible. And I've talked to them. We've talked to many of them. I've talked to many people out there that have companies that are async work, that are four-hour, four-day work weeks, that are everything that you could want in a job in the development sphere. It's just unfortunate that it's far and few between right now, especially if you're applying to the corporate environment jobs or you're applying to first jobs without the ability and the luxury of being able to do all of the items that I, I kind of mentioned to stand out it's very difficult to find that job right off the bat. So it's important to to have your expectations be set like from Matt, from what Matt was saying, that you might be in a situation where you will have to do a little bit of extra work. So another thing that, too, actually, mm-hmm, I was yeah, going to say really mm-hmm. quick is like with, with, with this stuff too, a lot, some of it can be done and we, maybe we'll have a time management episode now that because this is actually giving me quite a few ideas. But there are a lot of things that you can do to sort of manage your time as well. Like if you're a person, if you're a person that is constantly like working, 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 and you have just 10 minutes at the end of the day, it's hard to remember at that 10 minutes what you did. So if you wanted to log what you were doing all day in that blog post, or you wanted to log it for your own notes or whatever, sometimes there's different ways to manage it. Like, hey, I completed a task. I'll quickly jot it down. Jotting it down might take 30 seconds, but you did it fresh. Now that jotting down took less time. You wrote more note now, you, more notes than you would normally. Now you can go on to the next task. There's like little things that you can do. And I think that this whole little section here, if you will, has actually, I think we should do a time management episode, especially for junior devs, actually, Mike, because there's definitely some things that you and I have figured out over time where it's like, Hey, let's chip away at this. Hey, chipping away at this doesn't work. Hey, you know, this is how we would manage this. That's how you would manage that. We should track this. This is too much tracking. I think that's that making not necessarily like a a templated procedure for junior devs for time develop or time management, but make like having tips and tricks where if they're doing a blog post, maybe this is the better way to do it. If they're making notes, maybe this is the better way to do it. I think that might be something that would really help with with the, the work-life balance and with the time management. I, I agree. And I'm, I'm actually looking into a lot of different time management techniques and I'm reading books about it right now. I'm trying to do exactly that. I'm trying to be more productive in my job 
or in my work hours because I found that a lot of the times I can do, you know, the work that I do in 12 hours a day in about four to six hours if I'm actually focused and if I manage my time correctly and if I'm not hopping around like a crazy maniac. So I'm trying to shift to that Mm -hmm. kind of mentality and I'm trying to set very clear boundaries. And we'll talk about this. Like Matt said, we'll have a time management episode. Matt, maybe you can write it up. But we'll talk about this where like I want to even set hard boundaries on myself and try to see if I can kind of form to those boundaries where instead of having that like flexible 12-hour day where I dick around for three hours, why not, you know, I can only work six hours today. And what can I do with that? And just test it out and experiment. So when we do have that episode, I'll be talking from a place of experimentation, not expertise, but hopefully there'll be something interesting from that. But with that, let's move on to this next section here. It's code reviews. So again, the episode is about mentoring junior developers. So I think code reviews is a really big part of that. I want to preface this that I'm actually not good at code reviews. Like I don't give good code reviews. There's just plain don't. I'm trying to get better at it again. Um, I'm reading, I'm talking to people that do give better code reviews that are more strict, but I'm trying to find that in between of giving good feedback and destroying someone because you don't like their code or it doesn't fit your style. So one of the advice, some advice that I've been given and that I've read is don't be blunt, right? So when you read something, when you see some code, don't say like in a comment, this is bad code. That is not constructive, but I've seen it. Like I've, I've, I've personally gotten that feedback before. It's not constructive. It's not beneficial. It does explain that something needs to be done here, but what needs to be done, why it's bad, none of that. So that can kind of, that can kill a junior dev, really. If someone, if someone comments this is bad on a junior dev's code in their first like three months, they might go out of the industry. And to you, that might have been just time saving. Like, oh, I'm just going to say this is bad. Like as a mentor, I'm going to say this is bad so that they go back and rethink it. That might just be a time-saving technique, but really it could trickle down to being a devastating effect on that junior. So you have to think of it from their perspective. When you're when you're giving a comment in a review, think of it about how they would receive it. And you might not receive that diff- like the same. Like you, you might be okay with receiving this as bad, but try to take yourself out of it, right? So a, a good example of something that could um, be better than this is bad is finding the piece of code that's bad. Right. And then saying, and then kind of saying that the structure is good. Like, hey, the, you know, the, it's a good start. You, you've got the, you've got the start and the end there good. But in between there, where you do this render function of this image, there's something it, it, we, we need, we need you to formulate it better for the, you know, the server connection. A very specific example, right? Saying which line is bad without saying it's bad and also saying like, the, you know, other stuff that you made was good because when someone receives feedback, they don't take it as, hey, this line is bad. They take it as everything they're doing is bad. So it's good to kind of for, kind of prop them up a little bit and tell them what's good about their code and also then bring them down a little bit and, and criticize what they've done wrong and push them in the right direction. So pushing them in the right direction is another kind of step to this. And that can be done with either providing an example code or just providing a link to like a Stack Overflow article or a, like the documentation of the whatever, 
that will lead them to the right direction. You don't have to show them and write the solution. Don't do that. But try to kind of push them in the right direction, right? Especially if you've already kind of told them about it and they came back to you with another kind of poorly written piece of code. The other thing is don't nitpick everything. So when you get a code review and there's, I don't know, you're a, you're a spaces guy and there's tabs everywhere. There, you know, there's capitals here and there and stuff like that. What I've seen happen is a junior developer will get it back with every single line having a mark on it. And the marks are maybe constructive, maybe fine. Like, hey, just change that. But as soon as they see that overwhelming red, you know, the overwhelming, the overwhelming, uh, like code review that brings them down immediately. Like that, it's just like a boom, like, holy shit, I obviously suck at this. What you can do is instead of saying that every line is bad, if it's a structural thing, especially show them how to use linting, linters and prettier, just be, just go over to their desk or send them a tutorial video or whatever, show them how to use the tools that actually fix that for them rather than them having to worry about it. Cause nitpicking to me is like the, one of the biggest annoyances that I have, like if you want me to use tabs and spaces, get me the linting file and the prettier file that will do that automatically on save. That's almost like a, that's almost like when, and I hate this in all jobs, this isn't just coding, when there's a procedure that the company has made, so I can't Google it. It's their procedure. It's their preference. It's their entire invention. And they don't tell you it. And they're, and then they kind of think like, look at you and go, well, like, of course you use exit one and not exit two. It's like, no, not of course. You invented this procedure. No one outside this company knows that. No one outside this floor sometimes knows that. Why would I know your preference for what exit we take when we leave? And that goes for everything. That's why I wanted to bring it out of coding. And I that is a major pet peeve. And I find that to almost be, well, it kind of is a nitpick, but it's also just negligence. And it it throws me off. I just wanted to throw my little pet peeve in there, but no, you're you're absolutely right. Like if if there if there's a way for someone to solve it, like let's say they use the wrong exit every single time, the the junior developer or whatever, whatever the employee, you can just like instead of nitpicking the fact that they do that or they do a bunch of things, send them the instructions, yeah, to the company and be like, hey, I noticed that there's a few things that you you were just missing. Uh, here's the instructions. Just take a read over them. And uh, let me know if you have any questions. And then they can fi- figure that out themselves. Because again, it's, it's just going to be easier for them to accept it. It's just a psychological thing. Like we don't like doing what we're told. And, and, and that's stupid and that's childish and that's dumb. But it's just a reality. Whereas if you're nudged in the right direction and you figure it out yourself, you have that kind of self-awareness and self-respect that will – it will solidify it better. Mm-hmm. And it'll provide a better experience, like provide a better experience for that for that person. So if you can, whatever you can do to make that better, again, it's that back to that linting and prettier example. Instead of just commenting every single time on their capitalization, if you can just fix it once and for all for the entire company, then why, just do that. Just freaking give them the file and show them how to use it. Like they, you might have given them the file, they didn't use it. The assumption that you have to make at, as the mentor is that hey, maybe they don't know how to use this file immediately, and then be like, okay, like hey, I, I noticed you're not using the linter or prettier. That's one line of of the code review. Here's how to use it. Here's the instructions, the you know company wide instructions. And if they can't do it, then you then you can go and help them. If they can't do that, then you fire whatever. Like it's you know you you can only do so much, but 
regardless, it's one of those things where you have to give them a chance to succeed without nitpicking every single little thing that they do wrong. Um, some some other some other like standards of code reviews try to formulate it so that they try try to explain to the mentee that they need to submit shorter code reviews because the longer the code review and this is an intentional maybe on your part the less effort you're going to put into it because if it's like you know 300 lines of code that you have to review you're just not, like you don't have the time to do that the reality is is that there's just no time to do that if it's 30 lines of code that you review that's much more manageable so again just request the mentee to have smaller reviews for the benefit of them that's just the code review rule of thumb I actually have I actually made notes about my response while you were talking Mike this is the first this is a first uh regarding this peer review stuff or this code review stuff um I don't know if I cut you off there but I uh I have <laughs> I made notes here so uh, notes about my response I'm not not critiquing oh, right, right. oh yeah exactly and and I want to hear them like I I actually want to hear your the way you would want to get your feedback you know what I mean like if if let's say you submit to me a code review mm-hmm. and you have whatever 50 lines of code you just created a function that makes a bunch of array I don't it doesn't matter what you submit just you submitted some code to me there's a few errors in it there's just it's not even errors there's just a few structural problems that don't fit with the company's how the company like does things mm-hmm. how would you want to receive that feedback um, yeah, so, okay, I'll, I'll leave my notes because I'll, I'll answer this personally. So, I'm already a person that's, like, pretty hard on myself. And so, because of that, I would prefer just actual structural, uh, actual, actual structural assistance. And in, in this case, if there's a structure problem and not, like, a cold response. So, saying something like, only idiots, you know, structure it like this is obviously rude, but also really annoying uh, to me. But also being not rude, but cold and being like, this isn't how we structure things here. Like, okay, so should I, should I find exit one? Like, should I leave? (laughs) You know, stuff like that. Uh, Being really cold doesn't really work for me. Uh, I would prefer, I don't like nitpicking, of course, unless I'm constantly making the error in the nitpick where it's like, hey, we actually don't use tabs here or whatever reason. So stuff like that. And I would prefer assistance that teaches me the procedure, not the situation. So if I am running through an array and I want to remove the third, the third number in the array always. And for whatever reason, I'm doing some crazy, you know, there's seven loops and there's three integers. There's a whole bunch of global variables. What me being assisted would be, Hey, wait, I noticed that whenever you try to pull a number out of an array and like remove it from the array, you do this whole big procedure. It's working, but I, I think you can just use this. I think you can just use this or we're using an API and it handles this or whatever it is. And then show me an ex- like a baseline example of the logic. So show me a baseline example of the baseline situation that I'm getting wrong. And then me personally, I will then try to apply that baseline knowledge to other situations that are similar and then obviously fix this one that's at hand. I don't like it when someone says, we don't use integers in in this context, just change it to a var. And I don't know why that is. And there's no feedback given on why that is. I want to know the thought process, which I realize is a little more of an intensive peer review. But I'm a person where 
for whatever reason, I'm kind of an idiot when I go into something new, like a complete idiot, probably drive people nuts. I ask too many questions or I don't understand stuff that's really simple. But the instant that I understand it, which is usually pretty quick if I get proper feedback and stuff, the instant I understand it, I'm very good at extrapolating my knowledge. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a weakness. And it's a, and it's also a, it's a pro and a con, if you will, to my career, because I will learn something, extrapolate it, and then think I've mastered it when in reality, there's so many more concepts to go. And so I just stop looking for concepts. But my, if, if I get my framework good, if I get my framework sorted out and I get all that figured out to the point where I really get it, I can take that base knowledge and be like, oh, this is how they like to deal with arrays here. And then I can extrapolate that. And I'm sure I'll screw some stuff up, but I'm very much like a person that can extrapolate based on good knowledge. But if you just tell me we don't use ints here, we use vars, then I'm just going to make all the ints of ours without a reason other than that you told me to do that. And I'm not going to be able to extrapolate the thought process. And then you're going to be like, hey, wait, why aren't aren't these ints? And my exact response to you would be, you told me that we don't use ints here. And then it would, and then there's like a point of contention where it's like, well, that's not what I meant. It's like, well, that's what you said. So I need like a, what I basically need to sum it up is like a struck, like an actual assistive piece of feedback. And if you're rude to me or if you're very standoffish, I'm going to like retract and be like, well, I'm not going to bother this person. And then at that point, I'm just going to be working on my own. So I'm not going to have any feedback or minimal feedback. I'm going to try to avoid peer reviews and I'm already going to be hard on myself. So I'm going to start not doing any sort of experimentation or any sort of trying to learn. I'm just going to sort of color in the lines and sit there and shut up. And that's so it's going to make me like shut down, if you will, just because I figure, oh, well, if, like, if, if I'm just a cog in the machine, then I'm just a cog in the machine. So I need like feedback that's actually feedback to make me go, oh, okay, okay, I get this. I can make. I can make decisions now. Like the, the feedback you give me has to allow me to, to make future decisions based on how, on how you like to do things, not just today's decision on this particular script, on this particular piece of code. It has to be something I can extrapolate from. I think this is really key. Like I think, I think the understanding of how someone wants to receive feedback is also something that should be done early on in the process of like onboarding because what you just described is very simple. Like it's not very difficult for someone to do just be like, Hey, we're not using integers because VARs are too generic and they can cause issues down the line or something like that. Like, like we're, we're using integers because VARs are too generic, right? That explanation for you would be enough to be like, okay, well that, that makes sense. I'll just keep going. Whereas if, whereas if they say, Hey, we're not using, we're no, we don't use vars for this, or we don't use integers for this, or something. Whatever, whatever it was that you said, without any explanation, then you don't have that knowledge moving forward. And the next time you get up to that scenario, you're gonna go with that exact response that might be wrong in that in that case. Exactly. That's exactly. So it, it. Yeah, you're given false information almost. So just just that little bit of extra guidance, and not only that. Again, it goes back to that thought of like shifting you towards the right conclude like the right answer rather than just giving you the right answer as well mm-hmm. like it I, I have a topic here in in the notes don't handhold but shift focus i think that's a much more a much better way of teaching someone how to write the proper code than it is to just sit down and write it for them and then just send it to them without any comments right 
Like being like, oh, I, I just did this for you. That's useless. That is the worst thing you can do to a junior developer. As much as you think like someone might think that they're doing them a favor because they just saved them a bunch of work. That's totally, a, a you know, it's a reasonable thought. Again, thinking from the other side. But for a junior developer, that's devastating. That means that they didn't, they didn't have the knowledge to do it. So that, that's what that's what they're assuming. So mm-hmm. they they couldn't do it. They were not even they're not even worth the time to explain how to do it. And they just don't fit there. That's that's what the junior developers thinking when you do that for them. When you answer their when you give them the solution, as much as you think that that's like that's a favor, it's not. It's the opposite of a favor. So again, I really like the way you put it, Matt. The 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 process that you went through to get there. Because I think it will resonate with a lot of people. And something that I'm going to add to my own onboarding process is how do you want to be code reviewed? I'm, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to write it down right now. We're writing notes here tonight. Like we're just I writing am, notes. Yeah. This is a good episode. And this like for us as well, because again, we're in the process of like mentoring. We're in the process of being mentored. Like we're, we're, we're all over the place too. Like we're not gods. Like we're not, you know, we're, we're not amazing at any of this, but we are willing to learn and we're all willing to wait, make mistakes and talk about it. And again, that's that's something that I love about this podcast, first of all, because I learn a shit ton just by talking about this stuff. And with that, I'll I'll like touch on my notes too, because like these are some of the things, and hopefully this helps helps out as well. So me personally, I've never I mean, Mike and I will peer review each other and like we have a contractor we work with and we'll kind of peer review here and there, uh, but nothing's formal. And so the only time I've ever had a formal peer review on something was actually for uh, configuring enterprise grade routers and switches. So, I mean, it's similar in concept, but different. Like, I'm one is basically scripting and the other one or using commands and the other one is, uh, obviously development, but it, same in concept. So as Mike was talking, I came up with a few kind of high level points. And my first high level point when it comes to code reviews is, you know, find out, uh, what they were thinking before giving feedback on a particular section. And I think this goes doubly for when something is really, really weird or bad. So for example, if, uh, you, you go to peer review someone and they just have seven, seven loops for some reason where one method could do it or one loop could do it for whatever reason. So there's just way too much code here. It's convoluted. It's not done, you know, quote unquote, right. It works, but it's sort of like a head scratcher. Instead of you saying, you know, what the hell is this or what is that or what, what is this garbage or being standoffish? Realistically, it's best to sort of, in my opinion, go to them and say, this section right here, what were you thinking? Because what you might actually do is, is find a flaw in their logic or you might pick up on something that even you missed where you say, you know, we, we just do this with one method. And then they go, yeah, I was thinking of that, but doing it with all this other code around it is actually securing it from ever being changed or something. I'm just making up a scenario. And then you say, well, you know, you're actually right. Seven loops is a bit much though. Maybe we should have a, like a meeting on this or talk about it. Sometimes they might bring up a good point. Now, if they don't, because they're a junior dev and they might be brand, brand, brand new to the project and they might just be wrong, right? Verbatim. It's important, in my opinion, to find out what they were thinking. Because the way I, the way I would see it is you find out what they were thinking and you go, okay, this person thinks that, you know, loops need to be used in this way and arrays need to be used in this way. And we need to curve curb that thinking and get them thinking that arrays are more used for this and loops are more used for this and we should be sparingly using loops or the performance is bad. Why is the performance bad? And explain that to them. We need to figure out 
what it is they're thinking. And I have a, an example of this was, I suppose this was actually a bit of a code review. So we used to be in college, obviously, and we we did uh, embedded programming. And I came up with a script for one of the, I forget what it was. It was like blinking an LED in a certain sequence. And I had like four or five loops to do this. It was the first time we'd ever done something like this. And the teacher, who was like a professional in, in the actual space, he, he had a job in embedded programming. He literally came to me and says, I can't even read this. I don't know what you did. Can you walk me through it? And so I explained it to him and he's like, it works and, and it and it makes sense now that you've said it. But he said, I would never logic it out like this. I would logic it out like that. And I was able to take that advice and extrapolate it and go, okay, what we need to do is we need to make it like less lines, less loops, less this. Because I was brand new. So I didn't think of it. I was just trying to get the, the, the task done. And so I was like, okay, now it's under, now I understand. But if I had, cause we had other teachers that would not give good feedback. If they were just like put a big X there or zero out of 10, that it would be like, oh, well, I, I don't know. It worked. Like, what do I do? And they're like, well, just make it more efficient. Well, make it more efficient. How? I, this is how my brain thought out the procedure. So I was able to take like that advice that he gave and then I was able to make literally most of the rest of the year, cause we only had one class in this, one or two classes in this. Most of the, most of the uh, times that I needed, whatever concept it was, I think it was going through an array and an embedded system or something. I was able to do that in much, in a much smaller amount of code, like quite literally like four or five lines, which is critical when we're talking about a device that has kilobytes or bytes. It might be bytes. I can't even remember, but like a very, very small amount of storage. And so you need your scripts to be small. And if I had to do a complex thing on this chip, and I had seven times the amount of code that I needed every single time, that's eating up a whole megabyte and you're done. So it's very kind of crucial in that way to, if you think about it. And so I was able to extrapolate from there. Uh, my second point here is to actually determine the person's persona. So if you're going to be peer reviewing somebody and they are very arrogant, maybe you need to be a bit more trying to knock them off their high horse a little bit, something like that. Um, being like more like, Hey, you know, this isn't how we do stuff here. And those be like, yeah, but like, whatever. And you gotta be like, no, we kind of had to put your foot down. Like, no, this is really not how we do stuff here. This is how we do it. We're going to have to curve, like the curve your, like what you're doing. You need to curve this, curve this curve of your, of your, of your career. And you need to be like, no, like this is what you need to do. Um, for other people like myself, like I'm really hard on myself. So you being hard on me is just like another, it's like a punishment. It's like, Oh, great. So like I was just stayed up all night. I wasn't paid and I was trying to figure this out just so I could make this peer review, make this script work. And like I worked my ass off on this and now I'm just going to get, you know, effectively complained at and yelled at for this. Like it's almost like I'm being punished again. So like trying to determine their persona, whether they're arrogant, whether they're hard on themselves, whether they're just sort of like run of the mill, like, hey, I'm, I'm showing up for work. I'm just doing my nine to five. And so they're down for feedback. And you just got to try to try to figure out their persona and what piece of feedback as Mike as Mike has already asked as well asked of me is how to how to uh, or how they would like to be taught. And I think a lot of that has to do with their persona. Uh, and then the third one here is actually to critique at their level. So I noticed that sometimes I would get someone, let's say someone who's just a master at Linux servers would come to me and be like, well, this is what you need to do. And just type in a massive script. And to me, it's like, maybe I could get there. And maybe I understand the commands individually. But my, like my, my thought process isn't to the point where I would 
realize I'm working on a script of that level. So like, let's say it's like you go here, you delete that, then you go over here and you write this and you go over here and you ping that. And then you go up, you know, you, you go to the router and you do an up down so that it picks up on this. And so like to them, it's muscle memory. They have the procedure for the troubleshooting. They have the procedure for the fix. They have the procedure for whatever. But at my level, it's like, it, you can tell me that, but it's so overwhelming that A, I'm not going to understand what the heck you just did. B, I'm going to be like now scared and be like, uh, maybe I shouldn't be in this job because they're way ahead of me. What what we should probably do is critique at, the, at our level. So if we bring it back to code reviews, like Mike said, you know, a senior dev might be peer reviewing a, a, a junior dev. A junior dev is going to code at a junior dev level. So if you were to critique someone's code, stuff that's blatantly incorrect and wrong and bad for the procedure, of course, needs to be critiqued. But you're not going to get the perfectly refactored, smallest as you can code from a junior dev period. And by you going in as a peer reviewer and saying, no, do this, 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 and this to make it only 10 lines, yours is 30. That might be too much. Maybe try to get them down to 20 lines. And unless the project absolutely needs the 10, maybe you can force it. But to me, it's like you're not going to get them to write smaller code just by saying, this is how I would do it. Redo yours. You you have to understand that like this person who is a junior dev is a junior dev. They ha- they're going to code at a junior dev level. You can slowly inch them up towards senior dev or experienced dev, but you, you're not going to get as clean a code from the person who's been there for 40 years from from the person that's been there for four months. So I think that critiquing at their level and ensuring that you're matching their level at a f- and be fair about it is probably the better way to go. Damn, <clears throat> that is <laughs> all three of those points are so good. Um, well, thank I don't you. even want to follow <laughs> them up. No, no, they're 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 so good because. So one of the the, the first point that you made, where you just kind of like let them talk and let them let them go through their method of how they got there. I love that because I even have a point on that. Allow them to talk, like allow your the, the men, like allow the junior developer to speak. Because a lot of the time, you just don't have time. So you're like, okay, I'm just going to quickly show you this. This is how you do it. Maybe you're giving them great advice, whatever. Maybe you're not being critical, whatever. But if you don't allow them to talk through their problems, and if you don't allow them to talk through how they got to the solution, you have no idea what they're going through and how they got there. And you can't correct it. And I think it's super important. Again, your first point, allow them to speak, allow them to explain because it allows you to understand it from their perspective and correct it correctly. Correct it at the source. Like yeah, they might be, the source. they might be like misunderstanding what a VAR is. And, and, and you just saying stop using VARs. It's like, oh, okay. But they're not, they, they still think a VAR is what they thought a VAR was. If you explain that a VAR is wrong in this context because it's this and that, then they can extrapolate that knowledge. Yeah, exactly. And then the other point about like just knowing the person's personality and adjusting to it, that's like management 101. Like that's, that's so key to understand and be able to adjust to. And it's very difficult. I'm not saying it's easy. That stuff is very difficult. Being a mentor is very, very difficult, but it's one of those things that you just have to do to move up in your company. It's one of those things that you have to do to make a better base. Like if you, if you're a bad mentor, you're never going to leave your job. You're never going to leave what your current position because no one can replace you. What you want to do is provide a great team of people under you that if they need you to go to, you know, management or not even management, but they need to go to a senior role, they need you to go to lead another team or whatever. It's easy for you to do that. 
And the only way to do that is if you're able to mentor someone. And not only that, just from an ethical standpoint, you just want people to be better. You just want to be a better mentor. Like that, that should be one of your driving forces as a developer. Not for everyone, but whatever. But all the, all these points are super key. And then, yeah, like your, your, your third point was dead on as well. I mean, it's, it, it's just, it's one of those things that like, it's really hard to understand if you're not in it. But as soon as you're going through this process of being mentored and as soon as you're going through the, you know, senior to junior relationship thing, you, 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 you talk in whatever level you're at, but you need to start having empathy for people that aren't at the same level. It's really key to understand that you have to give leniency. You can't reject every single pull request or code review because it's not written exactly the way you would write it. You know what I mean? Like if, if it runs fine and it doesn't crash and it doesn't provide any critical uh, security errors, you have to be able to accept those things because you're never going to get someone that writes the code exactly the way that you do. You have to just move past the, your, your own biases towards stuff. And yes, maybe your code runs 0.1 second faster, but think of it from a larger perspective. If this is running on someone's machine and it's supposed to be running on a computer, is that 0.00001 second that you, you can make faster worth spending or worth like demeaning someone, worth spending extra time on? Like it's not you 99% of the time. It's just not. So I'll allow for poor code, but move people in the right direction slowly. Don't dump everything on them about what they have to fix on every single pull request they do. Slowly, step by step, section by section, make them better. So Because if they care, yeah. they'll apply that knowledge. They're not going to go back. They're not going to go back to the – like even if you let a, a sloppy function go, go, go through, you're not – like <laughs> – if you teach them how to write a proper, whatever, proper commented section or proper commented function or something, in general, if they care, they'll they'll continue to do that moving forward. So now there's only one sloppy uh, function that they've given you or a couple. But if you if you like let it slip for too long, like like it's a it's push and pull, right? If you let it slip too long, you have a whole bunch of sloppy functions in this big program. If you don't correct it correctly, or they just don't care, then they're going to keep doing sloppy functions, and then like you have to just you have to kind of course correct them in that way. Exactly, exactly. Um, okay, so moving on here, pair programming. Uh, this isn't for everyone. I want to I want to state that right away. I know some people just hate it with a passion, and that's okay. But for some people. This can really accelerate their trajectory and really make it easier for them to learn things. And when I'm talking about pair programming, I don't really mean that two people are sitting at a desk writing code at the same time. A lot of the times it's going to be mentor-mentee relationship where the mentor just watches what the how the mentee goes about writing the code. So they have a task to solve and they just kind of, they just kind of sit there and talk about it. Like the, the, the meant, the, the person that's learning, the person that's coding is meant to talk about stuff out loud, like their debugging process, their, uh, development process, stuff like that. And the mentor is meant to just kind of listen and watch. And as they see things that are done inefficiently or done, it could be done better interject a little bit and point in the right direction, but they're not meant to like take over again and like start writing code. Like that's not the process of, of pair programming. It's more, again, it's that guiding rather than doing for them. And it's, it can be a very powerful tool. Again, not for everyone. I understand some people like literally have anxiety attacks over pair programming. I understand if it's not for you, you have to 
clearly state that and be okay with it. But if it's something that you can get around, it can be a very powerful tool for you to teach someone and for you to be taught as well. It's just, it, it, it's one of those things that like, you have to kind of not care about making mistakes. And it's very difficult to, it's an easy thing to say, but a very difficult thing to do. Um, I, I've personally done a bunch of Twitch streams at this point, And that's like pair programming with, you know, an audience of 15, 20, 50 people where they're constantly pointing out every mistake that you make. And like that literally is what happens sometimes. So I've, but I've just thrown myself into the fire at that point. So I don't really care anymore. Like if I make mistakes and somebody wants to correct them, do it up. And that's kind of the mentality you have to have with pair programming. But again, easier said than done. I'm not saying everyone can do it. So if you can do it, try it. And when you're teaching someone, again, all the stuff that we said before, don't be super critical, guide instead of do, all that stuff applies to pair programming as well. The other thing is connect people. So a lot of the times you're going to be mentoring someone and you're going to notice that they have a passion for a particular set of technologies. Like maybe they're really passionate about Svelte. Well, if you know someone that's also passionate about Svelte, that's a senior developer in the industry, connect those two people. Be like, hey, you know, I I know X, they're really passionate about it. Uh, They have a question can they, can they ask you, uh, you know, can they ask you a question about this? And that connects them. And the more you do that, again, the more you expand someone's network, the easier it is for them to find a new job, the easier it is for them to find a job in the first place. If they're, you're talking about hiring process, the easier it is for them to kind of help the community and stuff like that, because that's really what it's all about in the end is you're building your network and connecting. It's going to be almost as important as your programming skills at the end of the day in, in, in a developer's career. The power of your network is crazy good. Um, I'm learning that firsthand right now with all the stuff that we're doing on Twitter, with all the stuff that we're doing with LinkedIn and all that. Like there's a lot of ways that we're trying to expand our network and it's been amazing. Like I've been talking to people in all kinds of different fan companies. I've been talking to people in different smaller startups, like all over the spectrum of development. And it's been really insightful and really eye-opening. And it's allowed me to create episodes like this <clears throat> that are a little bit more uh, packed for the junior developers. It's allowing me to kind of think in a different way. So again, connect people as much as you possibly can uh, where that connection makes sense. Obviously, don't go out of your way to kind of bring two people together that don't make sense. But again, if someone is passionate about a certain technology and you know someone that's working in that technology and that's also passionate, that's a perfect connection right there. And the last thing here uh, before we wrap up is the... It's kind of a difficult topic to talk about because I haven't figured out an answer to this, but I'd love to kind of plant it in the minds of everyone that's out there. And that's level up past the junior developer. So if you're getting into the industry and you can't find that first job, well, the industry is difficult to get into, but it's not difficult to stay in and move around it. So if you can somehow find a way to become not a junior developer and just a developer or intermediate or senior, it's going to be much easier for you to break in. Now, obviously, people are going to be looking for job experience and stuff like that. But I've said this before, um, but if you can kind of create a project from start to finish and not just like a demo project or a portfolio project, I'm talking like a micro SaaS. Let's say you create a you know, a SaaS product where you take people's money and they like they you offer them a service online and you manage all that payments, you manage the hosting, you manage the the database. If you can do that start to finish and you've never worked in a company before, 
I feel like that should put you ahead and put you in a place where you're not a junior developer anymore. And it might be very difficult what I'm saying, but if you break down what I'm trying to say into smaller chunks, like, hey, learn front end. Hey, learn the connection between front end and back end. Learn back end. Hey, learn payment processing. Like, break it down into smaller chunks. It's something you could totally learn in a span of a year if you're going at it pretty consistently. Not like eight hours a day, but like one hour, two hours a day. You can totally do it in a span of a year where you can make a very decent product in the end. And again, it's not about like you're making hundreds of dollars on this SaaS, which it would be awesome if you made like a really good service. But even if you make a couple dollars a month, it's the process of showing that, hey, I have a live product out there that I've created start to finish. Here's the code. You can look at it. Here's people, you know, people are paying for this product and I created it in X amount of time. It shows that you have passion. It shows that you have the ability to deploy. It shows that you have the ability to troubleshoot because everyone knows, like every developer knows that if you have a product live out there, you've gone through so many different stages of troubleshooting and roadblocks. So they know that you can get past those. It just shows a lot of a lot of what a, a senior developer or an intermediate developer can do. So again, I don't have a concrete answer for this. I don't, I don't know if that really does level you up or not, but I've been trying to play around with it. I've been trying to think of a way to formulate it to people and trying to get them to step outside of the box and try to see if they can either create something like this or just level up past junior developer. You know, the, the one thing that's interesting too is that about this is that like the, the the term junior developer is sort of a label as well. I'm sure that or like an in an indefinite label as well. Obviously, it means that you're kind of a starter or a beginner, but that can mean different things to different companies as well. Because some companies might be right on the cutting edge. They need a senior developer. And when they say they need a junior, maybe they actually need someone that has, say, seven years experience or something. And the seniors that they, they have, they need 15 years because they're right on that cutting edge. They're doing some crazy stuff. They have a lot of work to do and they don't have time to mess around. But then other companies who are smaller might, might be like, hey, we need a junior dev with five to six years experience to lay out nav bars. So the term junior, even senior developer, you know, is sort of fluid in a way because every single situation that you're going into is different. It also depends on your practice, too. If you're a person like me who learned a lot of my CSS by constantly laying out nav bars, maybe that's considered a complex CSS skill. But to me, because of my the amount of practice I have with it, it's very, very easy. So when it comes to sort of the job search, I mean, even like your your even your your label or your status as a developer or whatever you want to call it, junior, senior, mid-level, whatever, it, it it's fluid in that way because you might be the ultimate candidate. You might think you're a junior dev and you might, you might be an ultimate senior dev for a particular company. Maybe you bring pri- like prior experience from IT and they actually need a senior dev to do 30% development and they need to do 50%, 50% um, of like, all the server management stuff and the rest of it is broken up between HR stuff and a little bit of management or something. Maybe you were an IT manager. Well, perfect. Now you're only going to struggle with, what did I say? The 30% of the senior development, but you're a junior dev. So maybe like they'll hire you and be like, well, you can do 80% of the job, 85% of the job, right? Like day one. And he'll learn on the spot. There's so many different weird positions. Tech is so bizarre the prices are are out to lunch to customers because everyone is some guy says two hundred dollars for a website, another guy says twenty thousand. People are getting paid fifty thousand dollars, people are getting paid 
literally minimum wage. Some people getting paid four hundred thousand dollars all for the same all for the same job. And so the labels are fluid. But I will say, don't jump into something where it's clearly not for you. If someone said, we need someone to develop something like right away, we're going to be pushing your code out to, you know, thousands of customers right away. And we need something done by next Friday. And you're like, well, I've never used React and they use React. Maybe you shouldn't join that project because uh, that's not going to be good for you or them. And it's going to be a big mess. But again, like if it's something where it's like, hey, we need someone that can dabble in React but we also need to, like a lot of IT management stuff and you are an IT manager, maybe you will fit that role. So everything is so fluid. Everything's so up in the air. Realistically, it's just go through the, like use general labels and be like, I'm a beginner. I'm a junior. Sure. But when job searching, you can go in and really find that out. As I said in the past, I literally went to a, a, a an interview where I was thinking I was going to be in more of a management role, managing the creation of a media room and getting all the connections and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, that's great. I don't have much experience with sourcing, but I have a lot of experience with hardware. So I could just definitely look for that hardware and learn the sourcing part. And then it ended up that the job was about Skype. Like my answer to most of their questions was you could just use Skype to do that. So it there's just such a different... There's just such a different scale in everyone's head, in everyone's business, in everyone's situation that one label, one size certainly does not fit all. Yeah, <clears throat> that's exactly it too. Like I have no idea what my label is. Like no idea. And I've been in the industry for a while, but I don't know a lot about what's other stuff known. I know more than what other stuff. I don't know. But it's what do I do? What are, what are we? Like what are we? <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. So again <laughs> – <laughs> Drop the junior label and see if you can get a job without it. Who knows? Like if you get into the interview and you can express your passion and knowledge and skills, then why not? That's the thing. Like it's unless you've literally never created anything before in development, obviously, then don't do that. But if you've already put out projects out there and you've cre- you've contributed to open source and again, you've created a project end to end, I don't know. Like it, to me, it sounds like you're not a junior developer anymore, to be honest, because it's all about problem solving. If you can – if someone can throw a problem at you and you can solve it, that's really what it is. Like that's what you need to know. And maybe it'll take you a little bit longer, but it's not a big deal. Like you can figure it out. So that's the words of encouragement that I have for everyone. Those are the, you know, the high level recommendations that I have. This isn't a, you know, a perfect guide to how to mentor. This isn't a perfect guide to how to receive mentorship, but hopefully this conversation that Matt and I had can help you in in a way kind of give back a little bit to the community as well. Yeah, this is almost a good job, or almost a good job, almost a, a good guide for both mentors and mentorees because you can kind of get feedback on both sides and you can kind of listen to this. And if you want to become a mentor, then maybe you can aspire to be a mentor using some of our tips and tricks. And I'm sure there's a bunch of other tips and tricks out there or things you even disagree with and go opposite against us. But same with a mentoree. Maybe this will help you find a mentor where you want to find someone and you can explain some of this stuff where you were thinking, hey, you know, I don't like getting feedback this way or that way. Maybe this episode can help. Some of the tips and tricks would help you express your opinion a little more and find a mentor within your company or within your social circle or whatever it is and actually find that that mentor that works best for you that, you know, respects your values or Whatever, like, like he, he, they, the, the mentor will give you advice at the level you need or whatever it is that you want. And that way, that way it's a, uh, a good relationship for both. Agreed. Well, with that, 
it is time to end. So thank you for listening. And remember, if you want to support episodes like this, that we are on Patreon. If you want to support us, that is patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. And many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital and blueblackdigital.com, Chris from Self-Made Web Designer on selfmadewebdesigner.com, Tim from The Web Hacker on thewebhacker.com, DL Ford from dlford.io, BitPash from 9 Media on 9blockmedia.com, Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com, Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca, Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se, and Jeff from Twitter via at TheRithic. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on. And this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.